0: We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're continuing our study of the book of Mark, but we're also continuing in one very long day in the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 12. Let me read the text that will occupy our attention this morning, and then we'll just work through it verse by verse. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. And recognizing that Jesus had answered them well, asked, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The Scribes said to him, "Write, teacher." You have truly stated that He is one, and there is no one else besides Him. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as Himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that He, the scribe, had answered intelligently, He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. We've spent several weeks now working through what is really one day in the life of Jesus. It's Tuesday of Passover week. The large temple complex that we call the Temple Mount, which is the area surrounding the temple proper itself, is thronging with people upwards of 100,000 plus would be able to stand on that rock slab. And now the prophet from up north, Jesus the Galilean, the one who had performed many miracles, who had been to Jerusalem a few times before, who people had seen from a distance, who people had heard teach. And most recently, who had raised Lazarus from the dead just a few months earlier and just two miles from the very place they were standing, was now occupying unusual and enormous influence and interest and attention on the Temple Mount. He begins teaching. He begins debating. He begins talking. Remember, just uh, uh, yesterday or Monday of that week, He came in and was righteously, rightfully enraged that they had turned the temple into a place of commerce. Overturned the money changers' tables and had already caused a ruckus. He was the talk of the town. This caused the unabashed hubris of the Jewish leaders to be threatened and it caused their pride to be unleashed. They are so angry, so fed up with Jesus, that they actually begin plotting his murder. But first, they want his murder to be laid on him and have himself indict himself rather than do something covert, which they will end up doing in just a few hours. They try to trap him. Over and over with successive groups, they come and try to trap him. Remember, the Sanhedrin was a group of Jewish leaders that was made up of the representatives of the leading religious and theological classes in Israel. There, were the, the, there was the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the elders, which were representatives of the, of the tribes themselves, the lawyers or scribes, as we'll meet here in a moment. They all tried, one after one, group after group, to ask Jesus a question in front of the, the crowd that had gathered around him, that Jesus would, would answer in such a way that he would be made out to be a fool, unknowledgeable, unbiblical, or say something that would be worthy of condemnation. So, in successive debates, he has been challenged by Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians, and the elders, and now he's approached by a scribe. Now, before we go into this this text, it's important that we stop and say, what, who were the scribes? What is a scribe? Well, the Greek word that we translate, scribe, actually means just a writer. It was also translated many times in your Bible, lawyer. Now, when you think of a lawyer, you can't think of a lawyer in our terms with someone who goes to law school and knows the civil code and is able to deal with criminal and civil offenses. That was all wrapped up in their leading governmental document, which was the law of God itself. So, to be a lawyer in that time was to be an expert in the Mosaic law to which was applied all of society. So a theologian and a lawyer were one in the same in Jesus' day. The scribes were the ones who wrote up legal documents. They were the group responsible for the copying and tendering of the scrolls of the Old Testament Scripture. And again, they were the scholars, they were the theologians of the day, they were the seminary professors, if you will. In a world where theology and civil understanding were one in the same, to be a scribe or to be a lawyer was to be, in effect, the smartest person around. Consequently, they were the ones who determined how the Word of God was interpreted, how it was practically applied in daily life. They were the most respected theological leaders of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And just a little uh, point of record in, in the time of Jesus. Most of the scribes had been in opposition to the Lord. For years, they had been challenging him and saying, How did you come to the position of authority that you claim? How can you teach like you teach when you never went to our schools? We never taught you. There was one scribe, however... If you'll remember in Matthew chapter 8 verse 19, who after hearing Jesus teach. This is really encouraging. Matthew 8 819, 8, the scribe says, "Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go." It's a good insight that most of the scribes were in opposition against Jesus, but there were some who heard, who listened, who wanted to follow him. In the coming hours and in the coming days here in Jerusalem, it will be the scribes who are entrenched in Jesus' execution, according to Mark 8.31. They would be the plotters. They would give the theological justification for the execution of this miracle worker from up north. And in a moment, if you read down the text, or in just a few moments as Jesus is teaching, he will have quite the indictment against the scribes, look down the page at verse 38, Mark 12, 38. In his teaching, he was saying, beware. Remember, he's talking to the crowds in front of the scribes who were standing there in their elaborate robes. This was like, you know, the PhDs on graduation day who walk around in their robes that show what they know. There's no place to honor education. That's not what these men were doing. They were dressing up in long robes to be loved and admired and respected. How do we know that? Listen. Beware of the scribes who walk or like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. Who devour widows' houses for appearance sake. They offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. There was a rift between Jesus and the scribes and he is about to, in just a few few, uh, paragraphs here, call them out for the exact hypocrites that they were. They loved themselves. They loved their pride. They loved being respected and being looked up to and wearing fancy things so the people would give them the best seats at all the banquets. They loved themselves. But this Scribe is different. And this interaction with Jesus is fundamentally different than anything we've experienced in this study of the Tuesday in the life of our Lord during Passover week. Here we meet a scribe who is motivated by sincerity instead of antagonism. And we know that because Jesus all but says that very thing at the very end end of this interaction. He says, this is our title for the day, you're not far from the kingdom. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You are moving in the right direction toward truth, not in the wrong direction away from truth. This is a breath of fresh air. In this week, if only for a moment, it shows that there were some who were listening. And listen, we have to remember Jesus' mission from the very beginning wasn't an abject failure. Yes, people uh, uh, were fickle and bringing him in as the king, and then would be saying crucify him. Yes, there were there were uh, the Jewish leadership who who were against him, but there were some, including his own disciples, who understood the good news and followed him. This. Man, we don't know the end of the story. I so wish we did. We don't know if he ends up following Christ or coming to Christ, but he's awfully close at the end of this interaction. Let's look at this text together. Let's break it down by observing three essentials for grasping and receiving salvation. This actually becomes a salvation text by the end of his interaction with this scribe, Jesus' interaction with the scribe. Three essential Essentials for grasping and receiving salvation. What begins as a study on the law ends up in a discussion about being in or out of the kingdom of God, which is salvation. This is all progressing toward a true salvation understanding and experience. Three essentials for grasping and receiving salvation. The first is in verse 28. Recognizing the source of divine authority. Recognizing the source of divine authority authority. Let's pick up the story. Verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing. Now, let's 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 think think about this in our sanctified imaginations. This scribe, this theologian, this this attorney at law, at the law of God, this expert in the law of Moses, comes up, sees a crowd. Jesus is arguing with the successive groups of Herodians and Pharisees and Sadducees and elders. And he hears and he begins listening. He's an eavesdropper. And, listen to this, recognizing that Jesus had answered them well... He asks Jesus a question. As I said before, this scribe is different. He may have come to test Jesus initially, but he begins listening to Jesus. And he notices that the things that Jesus is saying make sense. He also notices that the way that Jesus has answered the supposed traps of all of these successive groups trying to stump the rabbi haven't worked There's a note of sincerity in his voice and in his question. Verse 28 informs us, by the way, that he's been there a while. He had heard successive arguments. We know this because Mark tells us that the scribe recognized that Jesus had answered them, plural, multiple groups. Well, it lets us know that he had been listening to more than one of the debates I mean, this is a man who probably had the long robe, who probably looked like uh, the the theological scribe and expert that he was perceived to be, standing in the crowd, listening to the back and forth. And there seems to be, there seems to be a bit of a pregnant pause after Jesus had just silenced his critics. And... As it were, he picks up the microphone, and he asks Jesus a question, and he asks him an important question. In fact, he asks him in his own statement a most ultimate question. He says, what is the greatest of all the commandments? What is the foremost commandment of all? What commandment stands above all of the others? Now, a little background is necessary before you understand what he's really asking The rabbis and the leaders of the day had shifted the focus over the previous several hundred years from obedience and loyalty to God as their loving Savior, their their King. And from looking at God morally and obeying Him, they had begun to create an entire system of countless civil and ceremonial laws that they could actually obey, which would make them feel better about themselves, which they could actually lord over the people so that they could... enact uh, temple taxes and punishments, there's a clash over the external versus the internal, over the civil and ceremonial versus the moral and the actual worship-inducing view of God that the Shema, as we'll see in a minute, purports. We saw this clash already back in chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the Sadducees, they had been sent up to Jerusalem from the south, hundred miles north. They're trying to trap Jesus up there. The Pharisees and some of the scribes, Mark tells us in Mark 7, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Jesus when they had come up from Jerusalem and had seen some of the disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. That is, they were unwashed. This doesn't mean they were dirty. It means they hadn't ceremonially washed their hands with a big long prayer and a big to-do and big towels to to wipe off the impurity. Then Mark tells us, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders, not the command of Scripture, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk, listen, according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with impure hands? That's insightful. To look at what the, the scribes were holding over the people. It wasn't just the law of Moses for which they were responsible. They were, they were extending their reach, their authority, their interests way beyond the scriptures. And now they were putting onto people false expectations that were not found in scripture. Washing the copper pots, washing your hands, washing the, the, uh, the, the, the utensils that you would eat with. And it it says uh, when they came from the marketplaces, they would go in the marketplaces, everyone would see them there. Then as they left the marketplaces, they would have these washings to show the people that was dirty and impure and I am about to be pure. I am separating myself. It was all a scam. The emphasis on ceremony led to an endless debate then among the various sects of of, uh, Jewish leadership between the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the elders. There was this constant bickering debate as to which of these laws superintended the other laws. Also, remember where this conversation is taking place it's at the temple. All around them at that very moment were rituals, sacrifices, cleansings, washings, baptisms or in mikvah, where they, they would dunk themselves to be clear and clean. In, those were built into the steps up going up to the Temple Mount. The crowd and the man likely expected that Jesus would say the greatest, the foremost, the most pressing commandment was one, maybe one of the tithes, one of the taxes. Maybe it was the making sure your animal, your animal was, was ble, uh, blemish-free and perfect. Maybe it was washing your hands rightly before the sacrifice. In other words, the answer would be something outward and external that could be observed, something formal and observable. And both then and now, listen, we all understand this. People tend to think this is how religion, this is how worship works. It's something you can do and be done with. And, so it seemed, no matter which commandment Jesus would point to, which ritual he would highlight, a theologian, another scribe from a different theological sect, could say, yes, but what about, and he would point to another commandment. The Sanhedrin saw this as a trap question. But as we'll see in a moment, I think the scribe actually wanted to know the answer. He asks with sincerity. And he will ultimately accept the answer that the Savior gives. This man is a telling example of what it means to look to and recognize Jesus as the source of authority. He came to the right source. He had been listening over and over. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the elders and the Sanhedrin versus Jesus over and over and over and over. And he heard that Jesus answered well. He answered in a way that made sense. He answered in a way that honored the Mosaic law, the covenant of God. He was the ultimate theologian against and over the trained theologians there at the temple. He recognized the source Divine authority and everyone who comes to Christ in salvation, then or now, must begin with understanding that He has and He is the authority. There's a second essential for grasping and receiving salvation in verses 29 to 31. Number two, applying the essence of God's law. Applying the essence of God's law. This is the heart of this text. It will occupy most of our attention, applying the essence of God's law. Unlike the other answers in the temple debates, Jesus hears this question and answers it straightforwardly and succinctly, doesn't teach it in a parable. He answers very clearly to this man. And make note, he provides a biblical answer, not an answer from tradition or superstition, extra biblical. Rites and traditions and ceremonies. He provides a clear, unequivocal answer to what is the foremost command of the law. Now, you have to understand what is being asked here. He's not asking for, you know, literally a, a ranking, like what's the, the, the most important and what's the least important, so I don't have to, I don't have to obey the least important. He's asking, what's the essence How do you boil it down? What is the meaning of the Mosaic Law? Jesus' answer, again, not only genius, but biblically faithful, is He goes back to Scripture. And He goes back not just to any Scripture. He goes back to the epic Scripture that we call the Shema, or in Hebrew, here, which is from here, O Israel. He goes back to the most creedal statement in Moses' writing. It became a prayer that the Jews then and today say in the morning and at night, every day of their life. He goes back to the Shema. As he goes back to the Shema, he actually gives not one, but he gives two answers for what is the foremost commandment. He answers the question and gives a bonus answer. The first is the comprehensive nature of loving God. The comprehensive nature Of loving God. What's the first part of answering the question, what's the foremost commandment? Well, first, it's a comprehensive nature of loving God. Jesus answered in verse 29 The foremost, the most important, the highest priority, the greatest commandment, the most comprehensive statement in the entire Old Testament is this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He quotes the familiar passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. That's the watchword of the Jewish faith back in that day and still today. Ask any Jewish friend, what is the Shema? And they will go, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is unified. The Lord is... Transcendent and unique. It's still prayed again, morning and night each day. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. Let me just read it. It's going to sound really familiar. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, or Yahweh is our God. Yahweh, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now, if you're If you're paying attention, you will notice that the Shema originally in Deuteronomy chapter 6 has three applications and Jesus has four. Jesus adds the word your mind to your heart, your soul, and your strength or your might. How do we reconcile this? Did Jesus misquote Moses? No, no, no. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, over and over and over, he keeps saying, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. With divine authority in how he instructs from and interprets the Torah, the law. Who gave him that right to augment the very words of the living God in Scripture? The answer is... He has that right because He is the God of the Scriptures. Jesus can give footnotes and expansions to anything in the Old Testament because He is the author. By the way, there's nothing contradictory in this. The Shema was as important to the Jewish pious believers during that time as the Lord's Prayer or or the Apostles' Creed is to you and to me. In fact, in 2 Kings 23-25, the righteous reformer Josiah was judged entirely by the Shema, by these two verses. So what what is this about? First of all, how can Jesus add the mind to that? It's just being comprehensive. All he's saying is all that you are, four times in this text... Four times the word all is used, which simply represents and magnifies the comprehensive nature of the command. In all your heart, soul, mind, strength, every dimension of your life, as we say in our our mission statement. The Shema and Jesus' answer here point to Yahweh, to God, as the only true God and thus the only one who has a rightful claim to every dimension of a person's life. The heart, all of our emotions, the soul, our spirit, the mind, intelligence, the strength, our will. He has the right to own all of who we are. The Greek text Indicates, in the Greek text I should say, each of these four commandments is prefaced by the Greek preposition ek, meaning from the source of, out of. In other words, we are commanded to love God not simply with our whole heart, but out of our whole existence. It generates from the heart. William Lane writes, to love God in the way defined by the great commandment is to seek God for his own sake. To have pleasure in him and to strive impulsively after him. I love that. Strive impulsively after God. Jesus is here demanding a decision and readiness for God and for God alone in an unconditional manner. End quote. So let's ask a question then, what does it mean to love God from all that we are, from the innermost parts of our existence, our heart, soul, mind, strength, comprehensively, every dimension of life? How do we love God? Well, remember that you learn to love what you give yourself to, and what you give yourself to reveals what you love. Love. The true test of what you love, if you want to know what you love right now, and if you want to know the dimensions of love expressed, the true test of love is by observing what you give your time to, what you give your attention to, and what you give your resources to. That is a very quick revelation to your own heart as to what you love. Said another way, To love God is to give Him our time, our calendars, our attention, and our resources. There's something deeper. That's all interwoven in the most basic fundamental expression of love in the Old and New Testament, and that is simple obedience. 1 John 5 3 For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And if that sounds harsh, John goes on to say, and his commandments are not a load. They're not burdensome. Jesus said, God, very God, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love, then, is not an emotional attraction. It is loyal obedience and following. Love is not an emotional attraction. It is loyal obedience and following. I just remember over and over and over and over again as my three sons were growing up, hearing my my precious wife say to them when they would say in a moment of discipline, trying to get out of some kind of of discipline or or punishment or or, uh, uh, bad consequences. Yes, but mom... I love you. And hear her say, if you love me, then you'll obey. It's the same issue here. We love Christ. We love God. We express our love deepest, foremost, the most sincerely as we obey what he said. Now listen, it's clear that the Jewish leaders during this time were more interested in showing off ritual than obeying from the heart. They were private. There were rather private and personal things going on within them that were different than what looked like certain ritualistic obedience external and outside of them. They didn't have a comprehensive devotion to the Lord in moral obedience. So as Jesus continues to talk, He provides not only the answer to the man's question, but he also gives him a second one. You need to be sold out to God, not a religious system, not do's and don'ts, not careful observances. That's the caboose, not the engine. Do you love Yahweh? Do you love the Lord your God alone? Is he the, the greatest focus of your time, your your attention and your resources. Does he own you? Now that would have been enough. He could have said, there's the answer and walked away. But he goes on. And that brings us to our, our second sub-point here, which is the selfless nature of loving others. Not only comprehensively loving God, not only giving him our all, who we are in and, and the deepest part of our being, in the extent of all we are in our being, the comprehensive nature of loving God. But secondly, we see that part of the great commandment of, of God is the selfless nature of loving others. This would have been an unexpected answer to which this scribe will adhere to and agree in a moment. He says the second is this, and you can almost hear people who started to murmur, stop. He answers this, and before people could say, that was good, that was wrong, I agree, I disagree, he says, before you go on, I gave you the first, I'm now going to give you the second. The second is this, verse 31. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. It's interesting, he's commandment singular, greater than these together. The second commandment is uh, Jesus quoting Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh the Lord. This is a piercing and indicting word to them because their very life was taking care of themselves so that they would be loved, never serving and loving the people around them. As we'll see later in the chapter, these men were far more concerned with their own self-appearance, self-love being noticed by all than they were ever serving others. Especially the poor, and we'll learn that when we come to the widow's mite. This will be evident when they extort a poor widow's last penny. They weren't interested in others, only themselves. So, let's stop and with jesus for a moment and if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves how do we love ourselves and who is our neighbor it's an important question to answer well think about this who is our neighbor is simpler than you think your neighbor is drumroll the person you're next to not just the person you live by, the person you're standing by. The people in your living room right now are your neighbors. The people at the cubicle down the office suite are your neighbors. Anyone who you're next to, anyone whose presence you are sharing, that's your neighbor. Your neighbor is simply the person you are around. It could be your spouse, your family. People at the office, people in the checkout line, people at the traffic light and the four-way stop, people walking on the street, people on a Zoom call. Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans 13, 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor, listen, has fulfilled the law. It's an amazing statement. If we are faithful to love our neighbors, we have actually fulfilled the essence of God's commands in the Old Testament. It's quite a statement. Again, this is not a warm and fuzzy emotional feeling. Love is acting selflessly toward others. So we're answering two questions. Who is our neighbor? Whoever we're next to. How do we love them? What does it mean to love them? It means acting in their interest above your own. That's love. You act in another's interest above your own interests regarding their livelihoods, their sexual purity, their possessions, their reputation, their very lives. the very exacting essence of the final six commandments in the Ten Commandments. Those are all how you love your neighbor, how you look out for them and their rights and their preferences and their interests and their property and their spouses and their marriages, their reputation. That's how you love someone else is you make sure that your life makes theirs better and you don't look to them as how their life might make yours in other words, the ultimate example, the ultimate way to figure this out is to simply look internally with our selfishness and then refract that to others. What do I mean by that? Jesus said, in everything, treat people, Matthew seven twelve, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. We call this the golden rule right this is the law this is the prophets jesus says the golden rule so ultimately it's it's recognizing selfishness so that you can slay it it's understanding how we want to be treated in our selfishness and then transmitting that in a divine self-denying reversal that's supernatural into thinking that's how i'm now going to treat others is how i'm going to be treated that's how we love others And Jesus says in Matthew 7, 12, For this is the law and the prophets, this loving others. Quick peek at Matthew's account of this very interaction, by the way, on this Tuesday of the the final week of Christ's life on Passover week. At the end of this, he includes something that Mark doesn't put in for our our text today. After saying the first commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself, he says in Matthew twenty two forty, 40, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Let's back up from that for a second. Loving God with all that we are, loving others selflessly in how we would want to be treated, comprises the whole law and prophets. Think about this. Jesus, in these two commands, is telling us that loving God and loving others is both a hermeneutical and applicational shorthand for the entire Old Testament. Now and then. Let's let's make it really simple. Every single command in the Old Testament you can break down as to saying this is either telling me a way I can love others and demonstrate that or a way I can love God and demonstrate that or some combination of the two. For example, when, when uh, uh, Moses tells the children of Israel, when you get in the land and you establish your home and you build your houses, make sure on the top of your roof you put a guardrail, a parapet. When you put that parapet up there, And someone goes up on your roof, if they were to fall off, that's their fault. If you did not have the guardrail and they fall off, that's your fault. That's how you love one another is by having that parapet. I was thinking about this just this this last winter. And uh, when it snowed, as it often does in Kansas City, it snowed a, a, a good amount. And I needed to go out and shovel my sidewalk. Why? That's an expression of loving others so they don't slip. Whatever I can control, whatever is, whoever is my neighbor, whoever's next to my house should be loved by our actions. When you put God, loving God and loving others together, think about this. Every Old Testament passage, and I would even argue New Testament command, can be perceived and understood and applied as something about how to love God in deeper worship, how to love others in deeper service. Listen to how beautifully the Lord coalesces these two commandments at the Last Supper. In John 15, verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. He's the example. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. There's so much going on there. Jesus is saying, follow my example. Follow my example by loving others, and the ultimate example is laying down your life for your friends. I'm about to do that for you. Paul synthesized the same commands to the Philippians. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit in Philippians 2 verse 3 but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves do not merely look out for your personal interests but also for the interests of others have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus Jesus Their worship by this point in the early church was focused on the living, resurrected Lord Jesus. To love and worship Him and to serve and put the interests of others ahead of your own were one and the same. They, They blended together. Comprehensive nature of loving God, selfless nature of loving others. Jesus tells this man, that's the essence, not just the foremost, on this depend all of the law and the prophets. The entire law, the entire expectations and regulations that God gives His humanity who've come to Him to follow Him are, are contained in two simple commands. Loving God and loving others. It's shorthand for sanctification. First essential for grasping and receiving salvation. Jesus is the authority. You have to recognize the source. Secondly, applying the essence of God's law. If you're going to be one of God's children, you have to operate with his values. And Jesus just outlined the values of a salvation exercise, application, and a kingdom citizen. Which brings us finally to number three, understanding the invitation of the Savior. Understanding the invitation of the Savior. Jesus finishes his his answer. You can imagine the stunned silence of the crowd. The scribe then speaks and says to him, Right, teacher. I don't think he's being condescending. I think he's saying, Yes, I agree. You have truly stated, and then he just repeats it back. Yahweh is one. He is one, unique, unique. And exclusive in, in our uh, focus and obedience, there is no one else besides him. To love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Scribe answers that he agrees with Jesus but he adds something that's instructive about the nature of his initial initial question. In the last phrase of verse 33, he says, these heart issues, loving God, loving others, are more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Remember where they're standing. One of the things that I love to do in my backyard is I I have a... Uh, meat smoker is I love to put the wood and the charcoal in there and fire that up and hang meat whether it's ribs or brisket or something in there and get it going for multiple hours but here's what happens once I start that my backyard is full of that smell it's a wonderful smell think of that times hundreds The air at that very moment was full of smoke and smells of burnt offerings and sacrifices. Smoke would have been wafting in and out of this conversation, no doubt. And the man says, it's much more important than the burnt offerings and sacrifices that we are, our senses are, are, are aware of right now to love God and to love others. This was the week of offerings and sacrifices being Passover week. But this is an outlier scribe. He's different. He agrees with Jesus that the heart is more important to God than external ritual. This is nothing new. Nothing new at all. Samuel said in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedient, obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed, to honor, to obey, than the fat of rams. Now look at Jesus' response to this sincere scribe. Verse 33, 34. It, it just, just, <laughs> this, is, this is biting. This is telling. This is telling. When Jesus saw that he had answered him intelligently, which is another way of saying all day and all these interactions with all these groups, no one has answered me intellectually, intelligently, with any degree of exegetical uh, fidelity. This man was unique. He answered intelligently, which is a way of saying the others had not And Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. This passage is amazing. Jesus says something that would have made the listening crowd gasp. This takes us back to our first point. Who gave you the authority to define who is a kingdom citizen and who's not? Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God, which is tantamount to saying you're not far from being saved. Unexpected. The subject of the dialogues thus far has been about the law and the ranking of the commandments, not the kingdom of God and not eternal life. I love how James Edwards puts it. One draws near the kingdom of God, not by proper theology, but by drawing near to Jesus. Jesus exhibits his filial and messianic authority in declaring who is on the threshold of the kingdom of God, which is present not in the Torah, but in himself. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom you are not far. You are leaning the right direction. You are thinking the right thoughts. This interaction ends the debate and notice that everyone was done. No one could think of anything else to try to trap Jesus with. He won. No one left to ask him any more questions. He had, as an uneducated, upstart, from Galilee, come to the Temple Mount in the most important week in the Jewish calendar with the most important theologians and the smartest people right there on that slab of stone. And they had all tried to stump him and they all were silent after these interactions. Nothing else to ask. I don't think we should be too shocked that this man and perhaps many others might have believed Jesus after his answers. Do you understand the invitation of the Savior? That to understand the essence of the law, loving God and loving others, is to move near the kingdom. Let me give you two takeaways if I can. Two questions, actually. Where are you in relation to God's kingdom or salvation? Where are you? Not far from? Or are you in the kingdom? And you can tell this by understanding if your value system is based in loving God and loving others. That's the the litmus test. Where are you in relation to God's kingdom? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you run to Jesus? Have Have you pressed him for the answers to your soul and found him to give you meaning, purpose, forgiveness, understanding of himself, understanding of God, and understanding of you? and realize that He is the only way you will ever find hope and happiness in this life and the next. A second question. Like this scribe, does your Bible study lead you to worshiping God and serving others? This is insightful for us. If all the law and the prophets is summed up in worshiping God and serving others, then that that really gives us a head start when we have our quiet times later tonight, tomorrow morning. When we read, we, we walk away by saying, does this instruct me on how I can love you, Father, in a better, more intimate way? Lord Jesus, does this give me greater insight into worshiping you? Holy Spirit, does this give me more of a dependence on who you are and how you help me to understand the Father through the Son? And does this, or you can say, does this passage teach me how I'm supposed to be dealing with my my husband, my wife, my children, my workmates, my, my classmates, the people in my neighborhood, the people that at the grocery store, anyone and everyone near you as your neighbor, what does this instruct us? How does this instruct us to be more faithful? Jesus makes it clear that salvation involves a comprehensive love for God and a selfless love for others. If you understand that, you're not far from understanding salvation. But to go over the line, to be truly saved, to be truly converted, is to believe that Jesus is the only means to God, the only way to God, and the only one who can enable you and me to do this very thing. also implies the danger of not understanding that being a part of God's kingdom involves loving God and loving others. This is not a social club. This is not a, uh, a place where we enact social justices for the world's ills and mistakes. This is not a social alternative to the world. The kingdom of God is comprised of those who worship and love the true and living and only God his son, the Lord Jesus, and who, because of that love, want to give themselves away in self-denial and service selflessly to anyone and everyone to whom we come in contact. How far are you from the kingdom or how embedded is your heart in God's values since you are a Christian? I pray that you have settled confidence If you have any questions about that, you can certainly email the church. You can uh, uh, send us a text tonight even during our question and answer forum. We would love to talk to you more about what it means to have your eternity secure.